today's scripture comes from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. <clears throat> now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the, tomb, that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. But both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced this to the disciples. I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is God's word. Thank you, Jess. Would you please pray with me as we open God's word this morning? God, as we open the book of John again this morning to read about the magnificent day on which your son was raised from death, we pray that you would give us confidence in these words, that you would give us assurance of our salvation and the comfort of knowing that our Savior is risen and reigning and praying for us even now. God, we pray these things and we ask that you would dwell with us as we read these words and consider them together in the name of your Son, our risen Savior. Amen. Well, on June 19, 1865, a man named Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas to make an important announcement. He read aloud these words, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection heretofore existing between them 
becomes that between employer and hired labor. Suddenly, with the stroke of a pen and the reading of a few words, everything changed. Those who had been born into slavery, who were bought and sold and dehumanized, were instantly free. Obviously, we know that this announcement didn't instantly solve every problem that they had faced or would face, but it did represent a fundamental change in the way that they could think about the future and the hope that they could have that it would be better. I can only imagine the strangeness of this scene as people looked around at one another after hearing this announcement, wondering if it could possibly be true. For years, an abolitionist movement had called for the end of slavery. In fact, some people had been calling for it for over 200 years and had no real success. In most of the country, and in places like Galveston, Texas, it was so entrenched, so established, that it probably seemed like things would never, ever change. So when this announcement came, it was probably met with some skepticism, even by those for whom it was wonderfully good news. How could things possibly change so quickly? How could one man thousands of miles away, change things so fundamentally here in Texas. There was probably lots of doubt about whether that proclamation could even be trusted and whether anything would change at all, because it sounded too good to be true. But then a second announcement came. Slaves across America were already free. The law had changed and gone into effect two and a half years earlier, and the community on Galveston Island were just now hearing about it. It's a day that's now commemorated every summer on the holiday Juneteenth, when news of something that was already true finally reached those for whom this announcement changed literally everything. A sudden announcement of freedom, the skepticism it was met with, and the realization that it was already true are all things we see in the passage we're looking at this morning from John chapter 20. For people utterly lost in despair after the death of Jesus, the sudden realization came that not all hope was lost. But that announcement was not immediately celebrated because those for whom it represented wonderfully good news had to come to see that because of Christ's resurrection, everything had already changed. Where we left off last week in John chapter 19, Jesus' friends and his followers were in the most hopeless day of their lives. John illustrates that point for us in the first verse of chapter 20. He says, Now on the first day of the week, by which he means Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. It was really early, really early. Still dark. The the pre-dawn sunlight hadn't even started creeping over the horizon yet. And in telling us this, John is saying more than simply when this scene takes place. Throughout his gospel, darkness has played a key symbolic role. It represents chaos and anxiety and unbelief and lack of understanding and sin and death. It is the absence of goodness and hope. And that is exactly how Mary is feeling as she arrives at the tomb early that morning. For two nights, she had probably laid awake grieving the death of one that she had looked to as a rescuer and a man of righteousness whom God, she thought, would surely have defended. Yet he was not defended. In fact, he had cried out from the cross two days earlier, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He had been given into the hands of violent men who condemned him of crimes he never committed. God had not defended him. But for Mary, the death of Jesus was more than just an injustice against an innocent man. It was a tragedy, a very personal one. For her, along with many others in the first century, Jesus was more than just a captivating leader or a miracle worker. He was, perhaps, the one person who had shown her kindness and compassion during a time in her life when she probably received very little other than mocking and scorn and cruelty. We don't actually know very much about Mary Magdalene at all, though some recent works of fiction have given people the idea that she was actually a key player in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, who was then subsequently erased from the Gospels. But those imaginative ideas about her role and the the role that she played in Jesus' life and ministry are not supported by any historical evidence whatsoever. In fact, the historical and archaeological records from antiquity tell us very little about her apart from what we read in Luke 8, that she had been afflicted by spiritual forces, seven demons which Jesus had cast out of her. Demon possession is not something that we talk about very much anymore, but the Bible is clear about its existence and the devastation that it causes in the lives of people afflicted by it. From what we see in Scripture, it is a debilitating and isolating thing. It drove people to madness and to violence. It cut them off from friends and family and ostracized them from society. So when Jesus came to find her, Mary was alone and afflicted until he arrived with healing and restoration for her. He alone, among all the people in her life, most likely, reached toward her rather than recoiling from her. She, like many others whom Jesus had shown such compassion to during his ministry, mourned his death with a unique and profound sense of loss. So when John tells us that it is still dark when she arrives at the tomb, he's not just telling us what time it is. He's telling us something about the mood among those for whom Jesus was more than a teacher or a miracle worker. There are some in the first century who followed Jesus because they saw him as a means to an end, someone who could give them a meal or a leader who might bring about the end of Roman occupation. Those people did not mourn his death. They were not heartbroken over it, but Mary was. For her, The darkness of this early morning is a darkness in her soul and a darkness in the world for what has happened. But everything is about to change, and that darkness is about to break wide open. It begins in verse 1, when she notices something that she was not expecting to see at all. The massive stone, which had been rolled into place at the opening of the tomb in which Jesus was buried, has been moved. The tomb is open. The guards who had been stationed outside are nowhere to be found, other gospel accounts tell us. And immediately upon seeing this, Mary's grief is replaced by fear and anger. She sees the open tomb and she jumps into action. It gives her something to do and some way to feel that is not just helpless grief. And she is glad, I think, to have something to seek, an answer to find for outrage that someone has disturbed Jesus' body and caused him even more indignity than he has already been made to suffer. That is why she rushes to tell the disciples in verse 2 that something terrible has happened. She says in John 20, verse 2, she ran 
and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, which is probably John, and says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Some unidentified group of Jesus' enemies has desecrated his remains even after they saw to it that he suffered and died. So Peter and the other disciple, probably John, rushed to investigate. Like Mary, they are running. The urgency of the moment here is obvious. Not necessarily because they assume <clears throat> that by getting there quickly they'll be able to do anything, but because their love for Jesus and grief at his death is so real and so pressing that they cannot help but run to see for themselves what has happened at his tomb. John tells us that he outran Peter and arrived at the tomb first, and he kneels down to get a look at what is inside. But Peter, ever the impetuous disciple, arrives moments later and simply dashes inside. John's hesitation is probably what was expected. Jews in the first century were very cautious about dead bodies because of the way that God had instructed his people that touching them made them unclean. But Peter doesn't hesitate, even for a second. He just goes in. He is driven by love for Jesus and, as we've seen in Peter's life, simply unhindered by any sense of decorum. He sees the linen cloths lying there that were wrapped around Jesus and sitting where his body should have been. He sees the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, neatly folded up, where Jesus' head should have been. It isn't what you'd expect to see if the tomb had been desecrated and Jesus' body stolen. What sort of grave robbers fold up the linen cloths before they make their getaway? And why on earth would they have removed them in the first place? That would have made the scene even more awkward for them as they made away with this body. Peter and John are confused. They simply cannot understand what they are seeing. But then we read in verse 8, that John saw and believed. Now, there's a bit of debate over what exactly this means. What exactly did John believe? Some scholars think that it clicked for him, and that he began to understand for the first time that Jesus may not have been lost to death after all. But verse 9 says that he has believed for, or because, as yet, they did not understand the Scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. So evidently what John believed when he saw these things was Mary's assumption that Jesus' grave had been robbed, and he believed that because he did not understand what the prophets had said about the Messiah dying and then being resurrected. Though Scripture had foreshadowed and Jesus himself had promised that he would die and then live again, Peter and John, they don't get that yet. And they believe this word from Mary that someone has broken into the tomb. It simply isn't something that they can wrap their minds around yet. That God's Son, their Savior, the Messiah, the one that they had followed for three years, that they've just seen crucified and laid in a grave, would live again. They simply cannot wrap their brains around that yet. It's too big for them. And it's something that we are also about to see Mary struggle with. So they return home more confused and afraid than ever. Though that does not mean that they will remain that way. Christ will not see, it, see them stay in this place of confusion. And that is the heart of this passage. Years later, when John did understand the resurrection and all of its significance for the people of Christ's kingdom, he knew that it was a lot to take in. It's like 
He's recording this scene. He's writing the book of John, and he, he arrives at chapter 20, and he reflects on his own confusion, his own bewilderment about what he saw that day, and he, he, he sits down to write this to people like you and me, and he says to himself and to us, okay, I know this is going to sound crazy. I know it's going to sound impossible. Too good to be true. When I first saw it, I could not believe it either. But listen, Jesus died. He was buried. I saw it myself. And on the third day, he overcame death itself. And every sad thing began to come unraveled. Every tragedy undone and every wickedness began to turn for good. I know that it sounds too good to be true. When I was there to see it for myself, I struggled with it. It is good, though, and it is true. John has written this whole book for the sake of those who do not believe and struggle with unbelief. He has written it for the sake of those who doubt and who hedge and who wonder whether this is all just a myth Chapter 20 as a whole deals with the struggle to come to terms with the all-encompassing, sacrificial, and victorious love of God in Jesus Christ. And John knows that this is a lot to take in. And when it comes to Christ's resurrection from the dead, he knows that what he is about to say will sound to some too good to be true. It is the good news that changes absolutely everything, that sets captives free and gives them confidence about an eternal future, and he knows that it will be met with doubt and with skepticism. But he wants his readers to consider and then to see that it is real, that it is a historical event, and that by it, everything has already begun to change. The resurrection of Jesus is the fountain of hope for his people because in him we see that we have a living Savior who conquers our enemies, who comes to us in our need, and who advocates for us, and who is patient with us. And John seems to focus specifically here on that last one, that Jesus is patient with us here in this passage. He doesn't demand us to understand everything or have perfect faith. He doesn't reprimand us for struggling with doubt or for asking questions. He is patient with us. And by His Spirit, over time and years and prayer, He brings maturity of faith and confidence in the gospel and the assurance of salvation. But it begins right here. In the Word, this Word, John's careful presentation of the most critical event to ever take place in the history of the world. When we were discussing this passage this week during our staff meeting, Christy Watkins, who oversees Kids' Journey for us here at Westgate and is also a lawyer, said that reading this passage reminded her of preparing a legal brief. She said that the way that John is writing here lays out all the facts of the scene so that then he can make his case for faith in Christ. He identifies witnesses, gives the time and place, and details that only an eyewitness would have that he beat Peter to the tomb, who went inside first, the location and state of Jesus' burial linens. He wants his readers to know that everything he's writing really happened, just the way it's recorded. These are historical events, not mythological ones, and he's giving his testimony as if he were in a courtroom. And after this is, and after, and this is after he's referenced, something we noticed last week, 
something that Bruce explained to us last week, that everything that's taken place, everything regarding Jesus' life and death and now resurrection has happened according to the promise of God revealed in Scripture. Four times in the last few paragraphs he has mentioned that things happen to fulfill the words of Scripture. And the likelihood, as we saw last week, that anyone could have fulfilled even a fraction of the biblical promises of the Savior's life and death is laughably small, apart from the intervention of God himself to bring about the things that he said he would do. And as John notes in verse 9 of our passage, that includes the promise of Scripture that the Savior will die and then live again. The way John sees it, as he writes these things down, this is just one in a string of hundreds of the things that God had said he would do. He's kept every single promise concerning the life and death of the Savior, so why should we think that he will stop now? John is proclaiming what he now sees clearly, but he's doing it in a way that does not shame us or rebuke us for asking questions. He wants us to gain confidence in the assurance of the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't demand us to have that confidence on day one. And that is for our good, because there is no shortage of doubt about the resurrection. In the West, Belief in the resurrection has been rejected and ridiculed since the time of the Enlightenment. Beginning in the 17th and 18th centuries, anything that couldn't be either replicated by or confirmed by scientific study and examination was considered suspicious. So around that time, people began to look at all the miracles in the Bible with doubt. No scientist has ever been able to replicate them, and we even have laws of science that declare them to be impossible. For example, in 1785, a French chemist identified what is now known as the law of the conservation of mass, which simply says that it's impossible to add or subtract matter from the universe. Maybe you remember that from high school physics class. The amount of matter in the universe is a constant, and he proved this. And so after he proved it, people began to wonder how Jesus could have miraculously multiplied a few loaves and fish to feed thousands of people. It isn't something that's explainable or reproducible, so should we trust that it really happened? Thomas Jefferson went so far as to literally snip parts out of his Bible with little tiny scissors to take out everything that he thought was just an unhelpful myth or legend. He kept the words of Jesus but cut out the virgin birth, all of his miracles, and everything after the moment that he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He called this new version of the Bible the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, because for him and for many people, Jesus was not a divine savior, but a good example of love and courage and morality for us to follow. But long before the Enlightenment, or Thomas Jefferson, John anticipated that people would struggle with doubt. Not necessarily because he knew that the enlightenment would occur, but because the resurrection would sound too good to be true. I think he knew that. I think he expected that because of his own experience. He had heard for himself the words of Jesus and the promise that he would be buried and then arise again on the third day. But he could not get it. He couldn't see it. He didn't believe it when he looked in and saw an empty tomb. When he went home that day, he left believing that Mary was right, that someone had broken into the tomb and made a getaway with the body because it was easier for him to believe that than to consider that Jesus had actually done what he said he would do. 
because it all seemed too good to be true. And he knows that it will sound that way to many of us too. So John invites the questions that he knows people will have, knowing that the gospel can stand against them, can stand against all of our skepticism and the accusation that it is too good to be true. John knows that the gospel is good, yet it is wonderfully good, and he knows that it is true. It is the announcement that Christ has gone before God as our representative, the substitute who has received all the judgment which ought to have been poured out on us. God in flesh, who took on that flesh for the sole purpose that a day would come when it would be torn and bloody, when he would die the death which ought to have been our own, so that in him we might receive justification in the eyes of God, declared innocent in the name of one who received our punishment. He was laid in the grave which ought to have been ours. The wrath of God satisfied the sin of God's people atoned for. But darkness still covered the hearts and the eyes of the world until Sunday morning, two days later, when he rose in victory over death. It is the gift of unmerited, unearned, and undeserved forgiveness for wickedness and rebellion which ought to have ensured judgment. It is a message of new life and eternal security. And it is the announcement of wonderfully good news. And John knows that we will have questions about it, because he did. But he doesn't reprimand those who doubt. Instead, he is patient with us, the way Jesus was with him. And as we see so clearly here in John 20, the way he was with Mary. Verse 11, she arrives back at the tomb, evidently after John and Paul have already been there and then left again. She gets there, and she kneels down to see for herself for the first time and sees something that they didn't. John tells us in verse 12 that she saw two angels sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. I'm not sure why God chose to reveal these things to Mary Mary first. The passage makes clear to us that these angels were withheld from appearing before Peter and John but were there waiting for Mary when she arrived back at the tomb, along with Jesus himself. I don't know why he did things this way, but the fact that she is the first witness of the resurrection does two things. It lends credibility to the gospel reports about the resurrection. If someone were making all this up, they would not have given the most important eyewitness role to a woman whose testimony was not admissible in court in the first century in the ancient Near East. Anyone fabricating this story would have given this role, the eyewitness role, the key role, the key witness role, to someone trusted by society, not to a woman, and certainly not to a woman who had been possessed by demons and cast out of society. But Jesus does appear first to Mary. They first met when he showed her compassion that no one else would, and now here in this tomb he continues to show her kindness and honor as he gives her the responsibility to carry the good news of the resurrection to his own closest disciples. But at first, she does not grasp what is happening at all. She can't wrap her mind around what all this means. She doesn't even say anything. The angels are the first ones to speak, and they ask her in verse 13, Woman, why are you weeping? She's so overcome by grief that she doesn't even notice them, evidently. The word weeping that's used here is a powerful one. It's used three times in this passage. 
And I think that repetition is significant. John is making a point to us about how distraught she is. These are not subtle tears. This is not dignified crying. It's the same word used by Lazarus' family members when they mourn his death, when they are wailing in public. It's the same word used of a woman who shed so many tears that she was able to wash Jesus' feet with them. Mary is overcome with grief, wave upon wave of sadness, first for the death of Jesus and now for the apparent disgrace that he has suffered, even in death, has broken her spirit. She has nothing left but tears. So when the angels ask, why are you, why are you weeping? Their question is more than just a request for an explanation. Underneath this question is a statement about how utterly hopeless she is in this moment. She is seeking something that can never be found, so she has a heartache that will never be healed, and they can see it. They see it on her face. They see it in her tears. Obviously, she is still thinking about the empty tomb. We should be unsurprised by that. It's all that she can think about right now, this tomb that she's looking inside, and what it thinks that she means. So she says, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She is distraught, overcome. So when she turns around to see another person standing with her there, she does not recognize that it is Jesus himself who has come to her. And John says in verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She is so caught up in her grief that she doesn't even recognize the one that she is there to mourn. So Jesus asks her the same question that the angels had, and a new one. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And John tells us that she thought she was talking to the gardener. If it weren't such a serious moment, it would be funny. Sir, she says, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Even standing face to face with Jesus, she doesn't recognize him. It reminds me of uh, something a friend told me recently about when he flew home to Colorado to surprise his parents. And uh, he had planned this whole surprise uh, when he knew that his mom was going to be at the grocery store. So he, he went to the grocery store and he saw his mom in the produce section and he walked up to her and asked her how to, how to pick out a cantaloupe or something. And she completely stopped what she was doing to talk about cantaloupe with someone who she thought was a stranger. It took a minute before she realized that the person that she was talking to was her own son standing right in front of her. In her head, he was all the way across the country, not in a grocery store in Colorado. So it took a minute for her head to catch up to what she was seeing. For Mary, she thinks the one that she is seeking is a lot further away than across the country, and she is blinded by the grief of that distance, so we can forgive her for not immediately recognizing Jesus when she sees him. It's so hard for her to wrap her brain around this good news that seeing him didn't make it click, hearing his voice didn't make it click, nothing did, until he called her by name. It's amazing. He cuts through the grief and the sadness that has blinded her and so afflicts her. Suddenly, she's been brought up from the depths of despair, and he does it all just by saying her name. He's the good shepherd, as he said in chapter 10, who knows his sheep by name, and they know his voice. So when he says, Mary, she knows that voice. In grace, he is calling her to see what she could not see before. And he doesn't rebuke her for her lack of faith. 
He does not expect her. Why she didn't expect this to happen? Because after all, he hadn't made it a secret what he would do. He doesn't make her feel foolish for not seeing it sooner. He calls her to the joyful realization that death is not won, that hope is not lost, and that he is able to work all things for good. He just says her name, and with grace and power, her eyes are opened. And she rushes to him to hug him or bow down before him, and he says to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And then she does. First, it may seem like a strange thing to say. It's like she finally gets it. Jesus is alive and victorious, and she rushes toward him in excitement, and he says, chill out. Why don't you run this message to some people? Jesus is teaching her something important that John doesn't want us to miss. Both the angels and Jesus himself had asked her what she was seeking. She was looking for a dead body. So when the living, breathing Jesus that she is mourning asks her what she is looking for, the point he is making is that as long as she's looking for that, as long as she's looking for that dead body, she'll never find it. Jesus is telling her, stop looking for something you'll never find and a goal you'll never reach. Stop looking for fulfillment that doesn't exist and joy that doesn't last. Stop looking for those things. Stop looking for relief elsewhere and look at me. Jesus had come to her not to rebuke her for her unbelief. He came to tell her that what she needed most was not a dead body, but the Son of God who had come to call her by name. To fulfill the words that God had spoken to his people in Isaiah 43 when he said, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. And even then, when she struggles to comprehend the salvation that he had won for her, he was patient with her, and he opened her eyes to see it. That is who he is, the Savior who comes to us and who gives us eyes to see that we did not have before, who opens our eyes to see what we could not have beheld before or understood apart from his grace. He reached out to this woman in the hopelessness of her spiritual warfare, and now he reaches out to her in the hopelessness of her grief. And she wants that to last forever. Who wouldn't? She cannot imagine a better outcome than that he will continue in his ministry and that she will continue to follow him and learn from him and live out the rest of her days in his midst. But Jesus has already said in chapter 16 that it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus knows that he is not remaining in this place. He will not stay here in the physical presence of Mary or the disciples or anyone else. He knows that he is leaving soon and that it is to her advantage and ours that he does. Jesus will, by his Spirit, come even closer to his people than Mary is with him right now. And he sends Mary to announce this good news. And it is with the astounding word that he sends her this message, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. In his resurrection, Jesus has changed everything. 
He's given hope to the hopeless and brought dawn to a world that had been lost in darkness, where the first Adam had failed and brought death into the world in a garden. Now, in another garden, Christ has defeated death and restored the fellowship of God's people in God's very presence and as their Father. That is why John wants us to get this. It's why he's so patient with us and why he is laying things out in such a way that we will receive this as an eyewitness testimony of something that really happened. He wants us to wrap our minds around the eternity-shaping thing that has just happened. Though Thomas Jefferson thought of Jesus merely as a moral example for us to follow, whose life served the purpose of of training us in the ways of love and sacrifice and selflessness, John wants us to see that everything, literally everything and all of eternity hangs on whether or not Jesus was really raised from the dead. Paul will later say the same thing, that if Jesus was not raised, everything else falls apart. Because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from death, we have a Savior who is able to come to us, who is able to claim victory over death for us, And who, as we've already seen this morning, as Eric shared with us, is living and interceding for us even at this very moment at the right hand of the Father. The good news of the gospel is that salvation has come to us, grace poured out freely to people who do not deserve it, and that God does not wait for us to figure it out before He begins His work in our lives. He does not wait for us to get our act together first. He comes to us when we are not even looking for Him yet, when we are seeking things that cannot be found and answers that cannot satisfy, that cannot quench our grief and cannot give hope, He comes to us with life. And when we are lost and looking for the wrong things, He comes to us with answers and hope for eternity. When darkness surrounds us and when hope seems lost, when it seems like there will never be a reason to rejoice again, Christ comes to us. The resurrection reminds us that the good news is not a day yet to come. It is already true. Captives are already set free. Futures are already full of hope, and Christ has already done the work of salvation. And though we may wrestle with doubt and struggle with questions that we don't have answers for yet, He is there at the right hand of the Father, praying for our good and sending His Spirit to help us see clearly what we could not see before. Would you pray with me? God, what a joy it is to praise you this morning and to hear this truth from your word that you have drawn near to us before we ever lifted our eyes to seek you out. What mercy you show us that in our need you sent your Son born as one of us, to die as one of us, and to be risen as one of us so that in Him we might receive mercy and new life. Help us today, Lord, to take hold of this grace by faith that You give and which You cause to grow. Give us confidence and assurance by bringing this text to bear in our hearts, and give us great joy to be called Your sons and Your daughters, that we might one day see You face to face and praise You for Your sovereign grace. We pray all this for your glory and in the name of your Son.